Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I'm fond of the imagery you use there, the oasis. The Lord's Church is in many ways like an oasis in a, in a desert world where you won't find any spiritual sustenance out there, but there is an oasis here where we can find some rest and we can be fed from the Word of God. I think all too many people in this day and age, if they get a glimpse of this oasis, the church from a distance, they're inclined to say, well, that's just a mirage. There's nothing for me over there. If I move in that direction, I'm going to find out there's nothing for me there. But it's not a mirage. It's the real thing. It's an oasis. It's a place where you can find refreshment for the soul. And I hope that we, in our public testimony before those of our friends and family and those in our community, might be pointing to the church as an oasis. Maybe you should tell them, some folks you know that really should be in the church and aren't, whether they are unbaptized people who are not members of the Old Baptist Church, or whether they're members of this church who don't come to church, it might be good to remind them, you know, the church is not a mirage. And if you move toward it, you're not going to be disappointed. You're going to find refreshment there, provided you're looking to be fed from the Word of God. Now, if you're looking for a host of other carnal affirmations that might come from just social organizations, you might be disappointed in the Lord's church. But if you understand something about grace and something about God Himself, you cannot be legitimately disappointed with God. There are many things in my person that you could find fault with as the list goes on and on and on. That's one of the difficulties of trying to be a preacher is you're constantly coming back to the idea of how poor, weak, and worthless I am and how I'm trying to represent in some sense a great and wonderful and perfect God. And and that's something we always think about. But if we've done anything correctly in exalting God, we've pointed out that He's far better than any minister that's ever stood in this pulpit. He's better than anything we've ever tried to say about Him. He's better than my best efforts to exalt Him. And perhaps it's the greatest testimony that He can take an old blasphemer like me and turn him into a preacher and have the mercy to allow him to say something good about him and his dear son who is our Savior. I had a thought on my mind today, and the topic that I want to address is spiritual adultery. When you mention adultery and the breaking of marriage vows, it almost always elicits a a visceral response from people. People recognize this is a bad thing, right? Other types of sins, maybe folks would would, um, have a little bit more casual attitude towards them, but There's something special about, or at least there should be, something special about the marriage covenant and the the promise that is made there between a husband and wife and the the special nature of that relationship. The Bible uses this idea of infidelity or adultery, and it uses that imagery that we all can relate to in, in the natural relations of husband and wife, And it projects it into the spiritual realm. And it talks about people turning from God being like adultery. Our idolatry, the things where you lust after the things that are other than what God would have you pursuing, 
In God's eyes, this is like His people committing adultery. And that's a, uh, it's difficult to hear, you know. Nobody wants to hear a testimony about adultery taking place. It's a terrible situation. But if we look in the book of Hosea in chapter 4, we find a situation here where the nation of Israel is being described. They are a wayward nation. God has been their God. God has been faithful to them. They have departed time and time again. They have been faithless time and again. And in the book of Hosea, we see this depiction of wayward people and God who is faithful. And it's very much described in the language of adultery and sexual impurity. And I think that is intended to get your attention. That sort of thing gets people's attention, and it should be something we, we take note of, although our society has gone to great lengths to try to downgrade the importance of sexual purity. That was seen as a very backwards kind of wayward, this is what religious zealots do, it's cramping my style, you know. When you started having sexual liberation in the 50s and 60s and 70s and all these things were coming along, women were being encouraged to go out and live their best life now, and that was being described as just being able to do what you want to do in a sexual sense. Now, you scroll ahead 50, 60, 70 years, and you end up where we are today in a society that is just wrecked by this. Single mothers everywhere, children being born out of wedlock rampantly, and people saying, well, that's just an old, marriage is just a piece of paper. It's just, why do you need that? Well, uh, this is an institution that finds its roots in the Scriptures itself. And God has told us how it should be. There's a special covenant that should be there. This becomes the foundation then for a stable family. And what do you have when you break that? When you just say, this is not that important. You know, we ought to be able to live the way we want to. Right? Live it up. Why are we uh, preventing ourselves from having a lot of exciting, interesting experiences? Maybe you're meant to, how many times have you heard this? Maybe you're meant to love many people over the course of your life. Well, these ideas have brought a great destruction into American society. I'm mindful of where Paul talks about, you know, uh, offering them liberty, they're brought into bondage. This is what the idea is. You're going to be set free. We're now going to allow you to go out and live however you want to, and you're going to be, you're going to be set free. This will be a liberating thing, when in reality it puts you in bondage. And all too often, people do not realize the bondage that this sort of behavior places them in until they're already bound up in it. Then it's too late to go back and make the corrections, and you're dealing with a whole... Even if you come to a place later on where you realize, oh, this is something I need to get get right about, I need to be living right, you've still got a whole boatload of consequences that may be coming from all the times that you weren't. This is kind of where Israel found itself in a state of spiritual adultery. And I want you to take a look at the language that's used here in the book of Hosea. Chapter 4, Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. That's a pretty bad testimony. It's so bad. This is God's people here now. 
to deal with the typology of the Old Testament and New Testament, this is where people get confused on this a lot of times. So I want to speak to it for a minute. People want to say, well, you say that's God's people in the Old Testament. Are you saying they were all regenerate, elect children of God? No, they weren't. What I'm saying is God's dealing with them under the Old Covenant is in many ways a picture of how He deals with His elect family. So there's the elect under the New Covenant or the New Testament. That's the elect chosen family of God. It's going to live in glory for whom Christ died, all of that. And when you see these dealings with the Old Testament nation of Israel, this is a picture of how God deals with His covenant people, right? It is not saying all those people were eternally saved. Paul explicitly tells us they were not all eternally saved. Nevertheless, the typology and the imagery is here is God dealing with His people. That means all the errors and the problems and the waywardness and the adulteries that are found in the people of Israel are to be found in us. Right? And God's patience in dealing with them uh, is demonstrated time and again. Because there is no truth nor mercy nor knowledge of God in the land. That's a terrible testimony, but it's a testimony being made of God's people. You can live your life in the here and now as a member of God's elect, someone who is a believer in Christ, and you can get, get to a place where you're living in such a way that it's like, I look at them, I don't see any knowledge of God. They don't live in any way that acknowledges God. They seem to have absolutely no knowledge of how God would want them to live. You say, well, how can that be? Well, it's just sin. <laughs> it's sin. It's what you get wrapped up in. And I think we, uh, it, we find it, uh, it's easier to get. It's, the Bible says it's sins which doth so easily beset us, right? It's not sin, that thing that uh, once in a blue moon comes a knocking and you tell them to get away from your front door. No, it's coming in all the time. There's always attacks from a lot of different angles. And it easily besets us and can overtake you and put you in a very spiritually woeful state. Verse 2, By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. Just a rampantly sinful society here. Therefore, Shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. That's what I call conditional time condemnation. You see the therefore at the beginning of that? Therefore, because of all this stuff that preceded, all of this adultery and sinfulness that you're engaging in and you're exhibiting no knowledge of God, therefore, or as a result of all that, you're going to have these problems. You're going, to, you're going to face this temporal condemnation as a result of your sins. That is still in effect today. I bear the stripes of it. I tell you that in my folly. If any of you got any sense, you'd have to tell me the same thing too. Because you know it's happened in your life. There have been times when I've, you've resisted this or that. And you knew what was the right thing to do. You didn't do it. You brought consequences into your life. It's just, that's just reality. And the way God is dealing with His Old Testament covenant people here is very much a picture of how He deals with us in such temporal matters. Yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for thy people are as they that strive with the priest. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother. Well, that's pretty rough. It even gets into your religion, right? These people have their own prophets. 
they're going to fail, right? This is all, it's all over the place in Christianity. You've got people out there standing in pulpits right now, as I'm standing here, standing before you saying, I'm a prophet of God. I'm an apostle. I have new revelation. God spoke to me last night. And he told me this, that, and the other thing. All that's going to fail, even as it fails here. We find in verse 6 this very popular verse, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because thou hast rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. That is rough, man. (laughs) That is very serious conditional time condemnation. They're destroyed for lack of knowledge... Because thou hast rejected knowledge. Now, look, they're destroyed for lack of knowledge, not for lack of someone never having presented it to them. It's been presented and they're rejecting it. Now, this happens all the time among our people today, among all of God's people. You've got something in you that inherently wants to reject the Word of God. That's your carnal nature. That's the old man. You're going to have that to your dying day. And it's in there. And I suspect that many times, and our problem is uh, not so much that we don't have any knowledge, but that we have some knowledge and we just reject it. We just say, well, I I know that's what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to be willful about it, and I'm not going to do it. But there's a destruction that comes into play here. And it's awful. I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, and I will forget thy children. Some people say, well, God would never visit the sins of the fathers upon their children. Well, take a look at this verse. But think about this. Have you ever seen somebody who's a terrible father? And then you see that his children are really struggling with life. They had not been raised right. They have all kinds of issues. And you know that in many respects, you can look back to that and say, well, I don't know everything that's going on there, but I know that this person was a terrible father and it's created consequences in the lives of his children. That can definitely be in play. And when you've led your children astray in spiritual matters, is it, should it come as any shock that they're going to be spiritually barren in how they conduct their lives? That definitely happens a lot of times and we have to be careful about that. As they were increased... So they sinned against me, therefore will I change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. Their hearts are set on it. You see that? And there shall be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and reward them their doings. That's more conditional time condemnation. For they shall eat and not have enough, and they shall commit whoredom, and shall not increase, because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. Whoredom! The Bible just walks right into some of these issues. You say, well, that's, that's really not a term you should use in mixed company. It's kind of not very pleasant. Can we talk about something more pleasant? Well, it's an unpleasant matter of sin here we're talking about. They'll commit whoredom, and shall not increase. Does that sound like anything going on in your society society today? We have liberated people sexually. We have come up with a scientific means of 
preventing pregnancy. It's also a scientific means of revealing idiocy because of the number of unwanted pregnancies that people have. Given the degree to which you could prevent a pregnancy in our society today, and how many people say, well, I got pregnant and it was, I, I was really trying not to. People not very good at following instructions, even in secular and sinful matters, right? But look at this. They shall commit whoredom. They're going to go out, have this sexual liberation that they want, just do all that they want, eat your fill of everything that's out there in the garden of earthly delights. This is what our society promotes. And they shall not increase. I don't think that's only talking about, you know, they're going to have uh, spiritual malaise as a result of this uh, sinful practice. I think it's literally, in this in our society, it's literally, there's people out there having these types of relations all over the place, and they're aborting their own children. When you haven't paid attention to the instructions well enough to use birth control in such a way to eliminate 99% of pregnancies, and the pregnancy comes about anyway, we don't have to deal with that. We just abort the child. So we can have all the whoredom we want. We can have our fill of that and not have all the children we're supposed to raise that were the natural and an actual profitable result of proper male-female relations in the context of a marriage. You can have it all. This is what the world is teaching us today. You can have it all. Enjoy the garden of earthly delights. No consequences because there won't be any children you'll have to take care of. That is such a lie, it's, it's hard to unpack it all. But one thing that comes to mind is having children is one of the most delightful experiences you can have as a human being on this earth. Having children is absolutely wonderful. And we have convinced people that the sexual delight of running around with a bunch of people using your body like some sort of recreational facility, that that's better than having children and having a family and having all that together and all of the legacy that follows beyond that. We have rejected God's way in favor of something that's man's way just because we think that's just what we want to do. We just want to do that. It's having absolutely devastating effects on our society. Verse 11, whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. Get out there and drink it up. Your better senses about how you ought to conduct yourself and what you know about what the Word of God says about how you conduct yourself very rapidly begin to dissipate. I heard someone making a claim that there's some uh, crisis of sexual assault on college campuses today. I don't believe that's true, by the way, but it's been said that this is going on. And did you know that in most instances of sexual assault, more than 50% of them, one or both of the parties were drunk when this took place? Alcohol is the single largest contributing factor to that sort of criminal activity or assault. And yet, 
you don't see anybody saying, well, we ought to eliminate alcohol from college campuses and from, you know, we should really try to tamp down on keeping people from having wild, drunken parties in these situations. People want these things because there's something in them that wants to do evil. This is the total depravity of man, and even among God's elect and regenerate, there remains a sense in which people want to continue to do this. And you'll find it very difficult to fight against these ideas because they have tremendous popular support in society. My people ask counsel at their stocks, and their staff declareth unto them, for the spirit of whoredoms hath caused them to err, and they have gone a-whoring from under their God." They sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills under oaks and poplars and elms because the shadow thereof is good. Wherefore your daughters shall commit whoredom and your spouses shall commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredoms nor your spouses when they commit adultery for themselves are separated with whores and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore the people that doth not understand shall fall. Though thou, Israel, play the harlot. In other words, this nation is acting like a harlot. Though you play the harlot, let not Judah offend, and come not ye unto Gilgal, neither go up ye to Beth-Avon, nor swear the Lord liveth. For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. For now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place." Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom continually. Her rulers with shame do love. Give ye. The wind hath bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. This concept of spiritual adultery is clearly depicted time and again in the Old Testament. And when you see Israel going astray... I always like to warn Christian people because I remember this as a child listening to these stories of Israel um, in church. I would always think, well, you know, why did they do that? They were so stupid. God delivered them across the Red Sea. He delivered them out of Egypt. Why why didn't they just believe that God was going to keep delivering them and He was going to provide for them and they weren't going to die of thirst? God would provide the water they need and the food they needed and you... You want to think of yourself as a Joshua or a Caleb, and you kind of think, I would have been on the side of right. But that's not the case. These things are written for examples to us, and they are to teach us something about the spirit of adultery that resides within us. That thing within us that would cause us to stray away from God. I don't know how many of you remember the story of the prophet Hosea, but he was told of God to take a whore for a wife. Now, as a man, you hear that story and you're like, wow, really? I don't know if I'd be too keen on that idea. The terms whore and wife in the minds of rational men should never go together. These are two totally, they're like oil and water. They're total opposites of one another. And yet that's the story of Hosea. He was commanded of God 
this strange thing. Go take a whore for a wife. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2, beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. Bad enough that your wife is this way. You're going to be raising other people's children on top of it as well. This is a contemptible situation and very difficult. And, and, and I've often wondered, what would Hosea be thinking in this situation? Very contemptible. This, however, and the revulsion that you might have in the sense of, you know, this arrangement, is a depiction of God as the faithful husband and his covenant people who commit spiritual whoredom against him. It's a very difficult matter. It's hard to look at. But I think some of the discomfort we feel in looking at this is intended to get us to recognize something about God's mercy towards us. We're the whore in this thing. Now, you didn't expect to come to church today and think, well, my pastor's going to call me a whore. But that's the imagery that the Bible is giving. And if it's a little uncomfortable, whatever level of discomfort you might have with that arrangement that Hosea was in, we should be equally thankful to God that He would be willing to take us in. You might say, well, you know, Gomer, horrible person, used this horrible woman. Just terrible. Awful that Hosea had to put up with that. And what a, what a terrible situation. Yep, you're right. That's you. When you look at the situation of Hosea and Gomer, you're talking about two sinners. One looking at the other one saying, well, this is a really terrible person has done these horrible things. How much more so when it's God looking at an adulterous people? It's really intended, all that discomfort we feel in looking at this is intended to make us appreciate all the more what it means for God to have mercy on a people like us, a bunch of sinners like us. Look over here in Matthew chapter 12, I want to show you something. I mentioned before that this term adultery is, is often applied to people who are not thinking correctly or not following God correctly. Jesus Christ in Matthew 12, 38 says, Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. He, he's talking about, look, even in Christ's time, there's this adulterous generation of people out there. They kind of want to see the sensational aspect of religion. Show us some miracles and signs. Not too interested in the precepts and the requirements of actually being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this concept of spiritual adultery was out there even in Christ's time. But look at the mercy of God in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is the woman taken in adultery. This is a section of the Bible that uh, the wise and prudent say should not even be in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Rest assured of that. It's in the Bible. 
You mentioned something about the Puritans and how some of our people are reluctant to want to uh, quote the Puritans because a lot of the Puritans seem uh, exalted in some Christian circles for, for their piety and they wrote a lot of interesting things. And what they left out though was how they persecuted old Baptists. So it's good to know church history, but it's also good to know that church history is written by the victors. That means there's a whole lot more church history that's been written by people of a Roman Catholic persuasion who refer to, oh, we sent some people up there to slaughter all these heretics up in uh, modern day France. We were doing the Lord's work. No, they were killing old Baptists in many instances is what they were doing. And in their writings, they said they were heretics. Right? We talked about the Puritans. Uh, many of the Puritans were against this passage being in the Bible. They were in, in those who have followed in their traditions just because they thought it was salacious that Jesus would be so forgiving and accommodating of a woman taken in adultery. As to whether or not they wanted uh, the book of Hosea removed, I don't know. <laughs> but you've got a tale there in the Old Testament where God is telling a man to marry a woman of that sort. Chapter 8, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning He came again into the temple, and all people came unto Him, and He sat down and taught them. And scribes and Pharisees brought unto Him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto Him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. In the very act, this is no matter of rumor, intelligent people don't need that explained to them, but it's pretty graphic, honestly. In the very act, there's not really a question about her guilt from that perspective. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? They're trying to trick, trip up Jesus here, right? We'll give him a difficult question, a difficult matter. By the way, if you accept this premise that I've said, which we're all spiritual adulterers here, then when you are having a rallying cry against an actual adulteress, in the natural sense, saying we ought to stone her. If we're going to apply the law in that way to everybody, we're all going to be condemned by it. So it's a very dangerous matter. It's one thing to use the law to say what is right and wrong. It's another thing to use it to try to rain down the condemnation of God on others. God will take care of that business and we should be seeking His mercy. What sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. That's the idea that I just brought to your attention. Before you rise up in your revulsion over this idea of here's a woman taken in adultery, what a horrible thing. You better start thinking about your own sins in the matter before you start raining down lots of condemnation on her. Because we're all going to get caught in that dragnet. If you want to play the law game, if that's the game we're playing, we're all condemned. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. By the way, this, this says that they were convicted in their conscience. 
I think some of these men, I, I think, you know, a lot of times in the New Testament, there's kind of this, well, the Pharisees were all bad guys. And they did a lot of bad stuff, but there's some Pharisees in there that are children of God. And they had some conscience in the matter and couldn't oppose some of these. Not every Pharisee was an unregenerate Christ hater. Many of them, some of them were regenerate men who were wrapped up and very enfranchised in the traditional religion of their day. And they find it very difficult to oppose all of that. I think people like Nicodemus fall into that category. Um, This does say these people were convicted. They're thinking about this and they're like, that's a good point. Make of that what you will, but that's how I take it. Um, And they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Well, at the end of the day, that's where it all ends up anyway. Right. Whatever anyone thinks about your life or whatever you've done or that condemnation they had. Look, they're all sinners, too. They all got their own issues. The end of the day, it's how is Jesus going to deal with you? That's what matters. All that fades away. And when Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw no one but the woman. He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Well, that's pretty contrary to what that audience of people was thinking when they started this whole exercise. They thought, She was caught in the act. Okay? We're going to see some condemnation today. We're going to have a real... Uh, We're going to have a lynching, basically, is what it boils down to. And they wanted that sort of judgment. And in all this, presented to the Lord, the Lord says, Neither do I condemn thee. There is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to be that way as well. We're to be forgiving of the sins of others. Seventy times seven. We're supposed to be mindful of that. We, we each generate so many things that we need to be forgiven for that if we're not offsetting this in some sense by trying to be forgiving towards others, it's, this whole thing is going to be a train wreck. We're going to be at each other's throats over a host of different offenses that we've had towards one another. But there's a very important phrase at the end of this that we need to not lose sight of. Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Don't lose sight of that. We are to be forgiving, but we are not to accommodate and give quarter to rampant sin in the kingdom of God. If someone is an open, profligate practitioner of some sin, and they want to approach this church and come in and be part of the church... They are welcome to come in here. But it's under the auspices or under the the notion of, as you come in to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're trying to step into this thing of go and sin no more. It doesn't mean you're going to come in and be an open practitioner of that sin in an open way and say, by the way, you all need to accept this now. Now there's many churches who have decided that this approach is profitable, is helpful. You're being accommodating. You're trying to be nice to this person. But you're not. There's a thing in the war where they talk about giving aid and comfort to the enemy. You see what I'm saying? 
It's a terrible thing. You're not supposed to help the enemy when you're on your side and they're on their side. And if you come in and help them, you're giving them aid and comfort. You're actually fighting against the cause. And if you allow people to import their profligate sin into the church and practice it openly and affirm it, you are not doing them any favors. In fact, you're doing a tremendous disservice to the, to the kingdom of God. Christ said, go and sin no more. The New Testament talks about church discipline, removing people from the church who get, get involved in and are involved with unrepentant open sin in the church. I, I, I suspect that had this woman joined the church, if we had a testimony of this, and she said, but you know what, I'm just going to keep living this way. I'm going to keep uh, you know, hooking up with this married man over here, and everybody in the church knows it. The church would not have said, that's fine, don't judge her, neither do I condemn you. You can stay in the church and we just affirm you in that practice. The New Testament makes it clear that there's such a thing as church discipline. Jesus Christ talks about it in Matthew. Had she continued to practice that and demand that everyone in the church accept that she practices it and be okay with it, she should be properly removed from the church. Right? So there's a distinction between being forgiving towards people. There's a distinction between being accommodating of people who are struggling with sin. I don't think that if someone has some big sin, the first thing you ought to do is kick them out of the church. And the first thing you ought to do is come around them and try to talk to them about it, try to recover them, try to work them through repentance and help them get beyond this matter. But if you don't face that, if you just say, we're going to let people come in and they can import whatever sinful practice they want into the church, and we're not going to call it into question at all. We're never going to say anything about it. In fact, we're going to affirm it and say that it's okay. You are destroying the Lord's New Testament church. So discipleship, in many respects it starts with this recognition that Christ says, neither do I condemn thee. Right? Why can Christ say that? Christ could say that at this moment before he went to Calvary because he knows those sins are on my tab. I'm covering that bill. You are not going to be condemned for it. That's why Christ can say it. But he also says, go and sin no more. You see, sin is what created the problem in the first place why Christ had a tab to pay for each of us. And we're not supposed to be running up the bill. See what I'm saying? A disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ should be appreciative of the graces that have been extended to you and the payment that's been made in Christ and not think, well, I'm just going to run up the tab now. Christ paid for my sin, so I can go sin all I want. I'll go sin up some more. Bill's paid, so what difference does it make? It's an unprofitable way to think. <clears throat> we're called God's people and there's a call that's extended to us maybe we'll close here in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14 if you found yourself in some practice of spiritual adultery placing something before God making things more important than God uh, following some 
sinful practice rather than recommitting yourself to the Lord. By the way, everybody has problems with sin. Everybody's got them in different areas, and um, you know you've got to you've got to work through that. Um, a Christian disciple is thinking properly about it is someone who continually goes back and affirms that was wrong. I did that. It was wrong. I got to pick myself up, start following the Lord again. Lord, forgive me for this. I'm going to keep going. Just keep following the Lord, recognizing it's wrong. It's not. Oh, I do this, and I have, I'm born with a propensity for this that I have no control over, and so everyone needs to accept me in this, and no one should ever say a word to me about this sinful thing that I do, because that's just how I am. We need to be in this mindset that says, there is sin, God's people deal with it, we all have our proclivities towards it, and we need to keep fighting against it. Keep fighting to mortify sin in our lives. But in the Gospel of Mark, we find this. Now, after Jesus, verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That was right then and there. People talking about, well, the kingdom of God is coming one of these days. There's going to be a natural, there's going to be an earthly kingdom here that Jesus Christ is going to reign over during the, the temporal times. And Jesus is saying it's right here, right now. That was 2,000 years ago. The kingdom of God is at hand. We are in the kingdom of God period right now in the New Testament church. And he's saying it's right here, right now. And he says, repent and believe the gospel. This repentance idea is very much it's the go and sin no more piece, right? This is how Christian people are to be. We've heard the gospel, believe it, know that your sins are paid for, now let's follow Christ. And following Christ has to do with how we manage sin in our lives. It's not trying to find areas of sin and gain more support for people who will affirm us in the sin we want to practice. No, it's looking at it the way God does and says, that's sin, i got to move away from it. I want to be with a group of people who are likewise trying to move away from sin in their life and find the support there and we'll all stumble along together, but that's where you find the support is in his kingdom. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And they said, Let me get back to you on that. I'm in the middle of something. It kind of got something going on here. I'm fishing. How many of you if you were out there fishing? And somebody came up and said, you know, follow me. I guarantee you. I'm telling me, me too. If I'm sitting in a boat. I'm probably going to be like, yeah, you know, they're kind of biting right now, though. <laughs> and if they're not, they're probably going to pretty soon. So why don't you call me next week and we'll talk about when we can get together. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook, they forsook their nets and followed him. They did it straight away. There was something special in this call that came from Christ that was to come and be a part of the kingdom of God, be a part of his ministry. It was important enough to these men where they said, You know what? This is more important than fishing right now. And we're going to set this aside. We're going to follow the Lord. When we find ourselves in expressions of our own spiritual adultery, inclined to be wayward, chasing after things that don't feed us spiritually. We need to think about the call to follow Christ. 
And when you feel that urge to not follow Christ, you need to be like those fishermen who straightway just said, you know what, I'm going to follow the Lord. That's what we need to do. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.